Welcome to the 27th episode of the InfoSec Sync Podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And now, for Stories of the Week, ending January 19th, 2017. What's up, InfoSexing fam? Welcome to our 27th episode, everybody. It's been a busy week here at InfoSexing, and not only because we've been busy at our clients, but Matt also attended ShmooCon 2017 in D.C. Yeah. For some listeners who are new to InfoSec or have never heard about the conference, so ShmooCon is an annual East Coast hacker convention, and they are hell-bent on offering three days of an interesting atmosphere for demonstrating technology exploitation. They have stuff like inventive software and hardware solutions, and they have open discussions on critical infosec issues. Um, Matt, I know you talked to a lot of people out there and you saw a lot of cool stuff. Can you tell our listeners about what your experience was? Uh, it was a lot of fun, actually. Um, when I first got out there, uh, it was around Friday. Um, I caught some of the like uh, early talks and then a um, little bit of the fire talks. Right. What are the it, fire talks? So fire talks are rapid fire. You know, they're like 30 minute, 15 minute sessions where, you know, you have a speaker talking about a uh, particular topic and it's just rapid fire. Oh, so wow. It's kind of like, you know, a condensed, um, like a condensed. I guess, regular session. Uh, so you take an hour and condense it in like 15 minutes. Um, but it was a lot of fun. Um, there were a few. Um, I First off, I have to thank Bruce Potter and the whole ShmooCon team um, for another great conference this year. You guys did wonderful. Uh, it was a great experience for me, great experience for the people that I talked to. And uh, thank you for having a local um conference uh in dc you know besides dc is also coming up um but it's it's great uh having something local in the area so um the first talk i actually did see was um safely share sensitive files via git Mm -hmm. and it was a um an app called jack so it was pretty cool i liked it um, I had, you know, they talked about homegrown crypto and some of the things that they were doing with the app, but, um, you know, from our PRNG talk or subject that we touched on last week, you know, one of my main questions was, uh, you know, were they, what were they using for a source of the random numbers? Right. And from us talking about it last week, it was cool because it kind of prepped me with uh slash dev slash you random oh that's great right yeah. so 
Um, so definitely was asking the right questions and, you know, kind of had the right mindset going in. So that was cool. Um, there was also, a, I mean, all the talks were great that I was in. It was awesome. You know, everybody did a great job. Um, first time speakers, you know, second time speakers, veteran speakers. Um, and then they had like a look at the current IoT ecosystem, which was really cool because we touched on IoT a couple weeks ago. Yep, Internet of Things. So, yep. Yep. So that was awesome. And then I, let's see, the one I definitely wanted to mention um, was. And I'm bringing it up here. So flailing is learning. My first year as a malware analyst, and this was Lauren Pierce. And um, I just want to give you a little bit of a background on this. So uh, she says, this isn't a typical ShmooCon talk. I'm not an expert. I haven't developed a new tool to share, nor am I sharing cutting-edge research. This is a story, a story of adapting from a world with answers and guidance to a world where sometimes the only way to learn is flail blindly. So about three months ago, my first job out of school, I received a ticket for malware analysis with 68 samples attached to it. I had no idea where to start and nobody to ask. I started with simple, um, you know, simple methods and things of that nature and waded aimlessly through the x86, stumbling through anti-analysis techniques she had never seen. So she scoured my scoured her books and ran countless Google searches to no avail. What do you do when all you have are questions and there are no answers to be found? I flailed in the dark. I spent hour upon hour, day upon day, immersed in code. Eventually, though, somewhere in the weeks of flailing, I learned and I developed. Of equal importance, I gained confidence to ask for help. I learned a lesson I'd like to share with those new to computer security. Uh, flailing is learning. So it was very interesting in the sense that um, I think in the information security community, uh, you know, it's... It, it's encouraged when you go to conferences like this to ask questions, right? And kind of ask for help and to get everything out of it that you can. But it's not always like that in the professional environment. And, um, you know, I think it's attributed to the fact that with information security, we're behind a desk, we're on a computer. You know, it's not as extroverted as we'd like it to be. Um, however, you know, you have to be able to break those bounds and ask those questions and talk to people and interact with people and get everything out of it that you can. And she did exactly that. You know, so, Matt, I think one of the, the great things I liked about it was that she's actually a female and there's not a lot of females in InfoSec mm -hmm. and cybersecurity today. And for her to be interested in it, to take it upon herself, to learn it, to come and talk to other people about what her experience was and and how to get um, information and share that information. I think that's really cool. Right. And then, so she was, at, she landed at Los Alamos Nationals Labs, uh, LANL, mm -hmm. on their computer security incident response team as a malware analyst. Oh, excellent. So, yeah. So that's, that's kind of where this experience is coming from. Um, so there's multiple things, right? She's, she's a female, um, you know, it's in information security. Uh, she had learned a lot from academia, um, but it didn't really help her on the job. And she had to adapt. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think the number one skill is adaptability. So it doesn't matter if you have me in front of an IDS looking at alerts, or you have me in front of an SSP churning that out, or in front of an SCTM or whatever. I will adapt. I will 
you know, whatever that skill set is called for in that particular um, activity that I'm performing, I'll do that. Matt, you're and like that's what, you're like the Borg. Well, no, it like <laughs> it it makes you well rounded. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. And she she proved that in the sense that you can always. And the thing is, it's not it's not always a Google search away. So a lot of people can hide behind Google and say and and um, YouTube as well. But, you know, there wasn't a lot of info out there. I will stop rambling on about the talk um, and the conference. But if you wanted to get any additional information, um, just go ahead and um, I believe it's you can just YouTube um Shmukon 2017 and the talks should come up and i believe it's on their website as well um but they stream the i know the thing about Shmukon is it sells out in like 10 seconds right between all three rounds of ticket sales there's only like 2100 members that go to the conference or 2100 attendees so matt so, how did how did you get lucky this year i had a friend i had a friend uh rich thank you shout out um the first time i had went to Shmukon in 2012, um, I had gotten lucky and got two tickets, and Rich got one, which was which was cool. And that was his first conference he had gone to, like information security conference. Um, mine as well, so it was a lot of fun. And then years later, now he got lucky with getting uh, a conference ticket, an extra conference ticket, so he extended that to me. Oh, that's great! Thanks, Rich. Yeah, yeah thanks, Rich. So. Um, yeah, check it out on the web um, at YouTube.com. That's Y-O-U-T-U-B. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, it's uh, schmoocon.org, though. Um, you know, just give them, give them a look-see, and everything's on there. So without further ado, let's get into these uh, stories of the week. All right. What's our first one? All right. So um, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, uh, DHS, has published the National Cyber Incident Response Plan, NCERP, which aims to describe the government's approach to dealing with cyber incidents involving public or private sector entities. So before I dive into the story, this is a big deal um, because of the fact that NIST puts out great documentation. Um, there's other government organizational entities that put out great information. DHS is one of them. So... For them to put this out is cool. It may not necessarily be something that can be 100% prescribed to every business, but it definitely has some core things in there that um, that are good. So the DHS started working with the NCERP uh, shortly after President Obama released the Presidential Policy Directive on Cyber Incident Coordination, which was PPD-41. Um, in July last year, after making it available in draft in September, the DHS has now announced the release of the final version. The NCERP has three main goals. One, define the responsibilities and roles of government agencies, the private sector, and international stakeholders. Two, identify the capabilities required to respond to a significant incident. And three, describe how the government will coordinate its activities with the affected entity. So the National Cyber Incident Response Plan is not a tactical or operational plan for responding to cyber incidents, explained Homeland Security Secretary um, Jed Johnson. However, it serves as the primary strategic framework for stakeholders when developing agency, sector, and organization-specific operational and coordination plans. 
This common doctrine will foster unity of effort for emergency operations planning and will help those affected by cyber incident understand how federal departments and agencies and other national level partners provide resources to support mitigation and recovery efforts. So the NCR focuses on four main lines of effort, threat response, asset response, intelligence support, and effective entity response. The lead federal agency for the threat response is the Department of Justice through the FBI and National Cyber Investigative Joint Task Force, NCIJTF. Threat response includes mitigating the immediate threat, investigative activity at the affected organization's site, collecting evidence and intelligence, attribution, finding links between incidents and identifying other affected entities, and finding opportunities for threat pursuit and disruption. Asset response is handled by the DHS through the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center, NCKIC. Activities in this line of effort include providing technical assistance to help affected entities protect their assets, reduce the impact of the incident, mitigating vulnerabilities, identifying other entities that may be at risk, and assessing potential risks to the affected sector or region. Threat and asset response team have shared some responsibilities, including the facilitation of information sharing and operational coordination, and providing guidance on the use of federal resources and capabilities. The lead for intelligence support is the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, through the Cyber Threat Intelligence Integration Center, CTIIC. The agency is tasked with providing support to asset and threat response teams, analyzing trends and events, identifying knowledge gaps, and mitigating the adversary's capabilities. If a significant cyber incident involves a federal agency, that agency is responsible for managing the impact of the incident. This can include maintaining business or operational continuity, protecting privacy, addressing adverse financial impact, breach disclosure and notification, and handling media and congressional inquiries. If the incident affects a private entity, the role of the government is to be aware of that entity's response activities and assess the potential impact on private sector critical infrastructure. Now, there was a lot of uh, government acronyms um, Matt had talked about in there, but um, this is a major step forward for the government that we've been waiting for for a long time. And it's I think it's just going to get better with um, people coming up with cyber training and with um, intel sharing and better people coming in the government and in the contractor world as well. But, you know, there's there's cyber skills that that need to be had to uh, to get those jobs. Oh, most definitely. So going on that of cyber skills, what's our next story? Actually, this is a a good transition. Um, The cyber skills gap are quantified in terms of supply and demand. Everybody knows that gaining and retaining security talent is a major headache for a lot of security leaders, a lot of directors and things like that. The consensus is that the world is suffering a chronic security skills gap, but most of the evidence for the skills gap is empirical. There is little hard evidence and facts and figures. Indeed.com, which describes itself as the world's number one job sites or job site, has now provided facts and figures from its own experiences. It does this by comparing security vacancies against click interest from job seekers. The difference between the two figures demonstrates the size of the skills gap in terms of both security specifics and global region. 
Since Indeed is able to compare the difference today with the difference from two years ago, it's also able to quantify whether the skills gap is widening or narrowing. Geographically, Israel has the highest demand measured by security job postings per million postings. This is 89.2% higher than the second place Ireland. Imagine that, Ireland. 118.8% higher than third place UK and 187 higher than the US in fourth place. The figures merely quantify the demand. They don't explain it. Indeed.com postulates that the strong demand in Israel comes from the country's position as second only to the U.S. as an exporter of security goods and services. Combined with the emphasis it places on security in general, Ireland could figure so highly because of the tendency for multinationals to cite their European headquarters in the country. And that's according to Ireland's investment agency, quote, over 1,200 companies have already chosen Ireland as their strategic European base. An implication from the U.S. figuring so far behind Israel and Ireland could suggest that the U.S. skills gap is smaller than elsewhere. This is to some extent proven when Indeed compares demand to supply, measured by the difference between the jobs posting and interest in those vacancies. Indeed measures the gap as the percentage of interest against vacancies. With this metric, the higher the percentage, the less the gap. 100% means that the supply matches demand. Here, the U.S. scores relatively well with 66.7%. Israel fares worse at 28.7%, while the U.K. is second worst at 31.6%. Of the countries included, only Canada has a smaller skills gap than the U.S., scoring about 68.1%. The United States and Canada are the only countries where job seeker interest is more than 50% of employer demand. But it's not all bad news. In some countries, the skills gap is shrinking. In Ireland, the mismatch between supply and demand has improved by 14% since 2014. In the U.S., it has improved 7%, and in Israel, 5%. But in some countries, it's widening. In the U.K., by 5%, in Brazil, by 11%, and in Canada, by 12%. It would be nice to think that the continued media spotlight on cybersecurity has boosted awareness of the field and the number of professionals entering it. That comes from Indeed.com. But it is too soon to say whether these slight improvements represent the beginnings of a turnaround for global cybersecurity hiring. The methodologies chosen by Indeed.com provides granularity into security specializations. This shows that even when there has been an overall improvement in the skills gap, there still remains hotspots of demand. Job seeker interest in cloud security only meets 9% of demand in Ireland, despite Ireland's overall improvement. Even in the U.S., supply only meets 22.9% of demand. Application security is similarly problematic, as supply only meets 20.6% and 36.5% of demand in Ireland and the U.S. respectively. And it is far more worse in the U.K., at a meager 8.5% of employer demand. Despite this, there are some specialties where supply exceeds demand. The skills gap has become a jobs gap. There's more interest in security administrator positions than available job vacancies in Ireland, and more interest in ethical hacker positions than jobs in both the UK and the United States. Both of these job gaps are, however, dwarfed by CISO interest in the U.S., which scores a supply-to-demand mismatch of more than 200%. The skills gap details in 
their report only highlights the gap itself. The reasons are beyond the scope of the report, but nevertheless, it demonstrates that industry has a long way to go to close the gap. In the meantime, new technologies that require their own brand of security, such as the Internet of Things, they continue to emerge. While we are still trying to catch up with the present, the future will present new difficulties, and the likelihood is that new and major breaches will continue to be revealed for many years to come. Wow, so basically with the CISO um, mismatch, so there's two CISOs per one position? That's what it looks like to me. Wow, that's crazy. Not a good time to be a CISO. Good job, Nick. That sounded good. Now on to the next story. What do you got? The investigation is ongoing, but Ukraine's national power company, Ukrainrigo, has confirmed that the recent electricity outage in the Kiev region was caused by a cyber attack. Wow, okay. In a statement emailed to Security Week on Thursday, the company said a preliminary analysis showed that the normal operation of workstations and SCADA servers had been disrupted due to external influences. The analysis indicates that the incident, described as a planned and layered intrusion, involved malware that allowed the attackers to remotely control internal systems. Investigators are in the process of establishing a timeline of events and identifying compromised accounts, points of entry, and devices infected with malware that may be lying dormant. The company is confident that the results of this investigation will help the company implement organizational and technological measures that would help prevent cyber threats and reduce the risk of power failure. The incident took place on the night between December 17th and 18th at the substation in Pinchnysha, causing blackouts in the capital city of Kiev in the Kiev region. Power was fully restored after just over an hour. The company's officials immediately suspected external interference and brought in cybersecurity experts to conduct an investigation. Some of the investigators and experts involved in the probe told the BBC that the 2016 attacks were more sophisticated and better organized compared to the ones launched in December 2015. It also appears that several threat groups have worked together and that may have tested techniques that could be used in other campaigns as well. Russia, again, is the main suspect, the country being blamed for many of the cyber attacks launched recently against Ukraine. A report published in October by Booz Allen showed that the December 2015 attacks on Ukraine's electrical grid were part of a long-running campaign that also targeted the railway, media, mining, and government sectors. In the meantime, researchers continue to monitor KillDisk, one of the pieces of malware involved in the 2015 attack. They recently discovered that the destructive malware had turned into ransomware and started infecting Linux machines as well. Linux machines of all machines? That's crazy, Nick. Comrade, you have been busy. (laughs) Wow. Actually, you know what? I think... In a couple stories from now, we're going to be talking about some Mac malware, which we usually don't see Mac malware or Linux malware. Yeah. So pretty interesting stuff. So, comrade, what do you have <laughs> next for us? <laughs> so I think it was last week we talked about... Um, uh, Pono-Own? Yeah, we talked about Pono-Own and uh, people getting paid money for uh, vulnerabilities, right? For finding them, right? All right. So, for the 10th anniversary of the Pono-Own hacking contest, Trend Micro and the Zero Day Initiative have introduced new exploit categories 
and they are prepared to offer more than one million dollar worth of prizes. One million dollars. One million dollars. <laughs> Pona Own 2017 will take place in mid-March alongside the CanSec West Conference in Vancouver, Canada. Organizers have announced five major categories for the event. Virtual machine escapes. That's pretty funny. Web browsers and plugins. Local privilege escalation. Enterprise applications. And server side. VM escapes were first introduced at Pona Own 2016 with VMware, but none of the contestants demonstrated a successful exploit. Researchers did manage to hack VMware Workstation and earned $150,000 in November at the PwnFest competition in South Korea. At this year's Pona Own, experts can earn $100,000 if they manage to execute arbitrary code on the host from a non-admin account in the guest operating system. In addition to VMware Workstation, Microsoft Hyper-V has also been added to the list of targets. In the web browsers category, good old Mozilla Firefox has been reintroduced this year, and hacking it can earn researchers $30,000. Exploits targeting Microsoft Edge and Google Chrome are worth $80,000, while Apple Safari and Adobe Flash Player exploits are worth $50,000. Bonuses will be awarded for system-level code execution on Windows, $30,000, and Mac OS X, $20,000, and VM Escapes, $100,000. The bonuses are cumulative, so, for example, if a contestant hacks Chrome, elevates privileges to system, and escapes the VM, they can earn $210,000 in one go. Ooh. That's pretty good money, right? That's a lot of change. Considering that local privilege escalation vulnerabilities can be highly useful for a piece of malware, these types of flaws get their own category this year, with prizes of 30k for Windows 10, 20k for Mac OS, and 15k for Ubuntu Desktop. The Enterprise Applications category includes Adobe Reader and the Microsoft Office apps Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. Hackers can earn $50,000 for vulnerabilities affecting these applications. The most valuable exploits are in the server-side category. Hackers can earn $200,000 for successful exploits against Apache Web Server running on Ubuntu Server. Each exploit will also be rewarded with Master, o master of Pwn points. The contestants with the highest number of total points will receive 65,000 ZDI reward points, which are worth roughly $25,000. Registration for Pona Own 2017 closes on March 12th at 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Additional information and rules are available on ZDI's website. So, Matt, wow, let's get cool. a team together. Let's head out there and let's make some money. We need the A team. <laughs> so, speaking of malware, we have some Mac malware that we have to talk about. So security researchers have described what they consider to be the first Mac malware of 2017. They're calling it the Mac Daddy malware. I'm kidding. But <laughs> it, it has a simple structure and includes some antiquated code, but nonetheless appears to have existed undetected for some time, perhaps even several years, while possibly targeting biomedical research institutions. It was discovered when an IT admin noticed unusual traffic coming from a particular Mac. 
Investigation led Malwarebytes to the espionage malware now describes as Quimichin, named after the Aztec spies who would infiltrate other tribes. The spies and the code are both ancient. The the malware compromises just two files, a .plist file that simply keeps the .client running at all times, and the .client file containing the payload. The latter is a minified and obfuscated Perl script that is more novel in design. It combines three components. Thomas Reed, director of Mac offerings at Malwarebytes, and author of the blog post told Security Week, a Mac binary, another Perl script, and a Java class tacked on at the end in the underscore underscore data underscore underscore section of the main Perl script. The script extracts these and writes them to the slash temp and executes them. Its primary purpose seems to be screen captures and webcam access, making a classic espionage tool. It seems that this malware is trying to exfiltrate data from anything it can access. Since this has been seen infecting Macs at biomedical facilities, we believe it's used for espionage to steal scientific data, but we don't know at this point who might be behind the malware, he said. Somewhat surprisingly, the code uses antique system calls. These are some truly ancient functions. As far as the tech world is concerned, dating back to the pre-OSX days, he wrote in a blog post. In addition, the binary also includes the open source libjpeg code, which was last updated in 1998. Part of the script provides a rudimentary remote control function, it includes an additional method for screen capture and getting the screen size and cursor position and can receive commands that change the cursor position and simulate mouse clicks and key presses. The script also contains Linux shell commands. Running the malware on a Linux machine, Malwarebytes found that, with the exception of the Mach-O binary, everything ran just fine. It is possible that there is a specific Linux variant of the malware in existence, but the researchers have not been able to find one. It did find two Windows executable files, courtesy of VirusTotal, that communicated with the same CNC server. One of them even used the same libjpeg library, which hasn't been updated since 1998, as that used by the malware in question. The malware consequently presents a conundrum. It's simple in design, yet seems to have been undetected for several years. The only reason why I can think of that is, and the reason why this malware hasn't been spotted before now, suggests Reed, is that it is being used in very tightly targeted attacks, limiting its exposure. There have been a number of stories over the past few years about Chinese and Russian hackers targeting and stealing U.S. and European scientific research, although there is no evidence at this point linking the malware to a specific group, the fact that it has been specifically at biomedical research institutions seems like it could be the result of exactly that kind of malware. So David Harley, a senior research fellow with ESET and maintainer of MacVirus, the official MacVirus blog site, agrees that this is possible. The suggestion that it might be tightly targeted is certainly viable, he told Security Week. In recent years, there's been a lot of Mac targeting, uh, targeted malware that may, w- may well be state-sponsored. 
While they're while he's more familiar with such malware targeting political groups, it's perfectly possible that it's been used against research targets. And while it's been a good while since uh, he was involved in the biomedical research himself, he suspects that many good people in that field still prefer Macs to Windows. He's not so convinced, however, of the antiquity of the malware. Reed himself comments, We shouldn't take the age of the code too strong an indication of the age of the malware. This could also signify that the hackers behind it really don't know Mac very well and were relying on old documentation. It could also be that they're using an old system calls to avoid triggering any kind of behavioral detections that might be expecting more recent code. Harley adds, Malware authors have never been reluctant to include old techniques and new malware in hope of having it function on a wider range of systems. But the bottom line is, how, is that however simple or however old it works, it was found communicating with its CNC server. It is, therefore, sophisticated enough. There is no indication in the Malwarebytes reports on the attack vector used to deliver the malware, nor how long it operated before the discovery, nor what of any data, um, what of any data it had exfiltrated. It is, writes Reed, easy to spot given any reason to look at the infected machine closely, such as unusual network traffic. It is also easy to detect and easy to remove. Malwarebytes detects this malware and other good Mac AVs will do similarly soon. Apple calls it Fruit Fly, and it has already released an update that will automatically be downloaded behind the scenes to get to protect against future infections. So there you go, Mac users. Make sure um, <clears throat> you check to see that you've got the latest update. Because... Yeah, you don't want um, Fruit Fly. Right. You don't want a Fruit Fly. <laughs> it is. It is rather um, interesting, though. I mean, with malware, it seems like uh, there's a lot going on. There always is a lot going on with malware, but in this particular case. It seems like they may have dumbed down the code so it would reach a wider range of systems. Yeah, I think I think that's the, the main part of it there. So one part of it is finding the malware when you have a particular breach happening or a particular incident. Mm-hmm. What's the other part? Disclosure, right? Oh, absolutely. You've got to disclose so happens, it, right? <laughs> yeah, what happens when you don't uh, responsibly disclosure? Well, not adhering to responsible disclosure kind of has the potential to amplify the threats posed by certain vulnerabilities and incidents? Do tell. So, as a company that delivers intelligence derived from the deep and dark web, Security Week comes across everything from stolen data and insider recruitment to emerging cyber and physical threats on a daily basis. These observations also mean that often, they identify organizations, security vulnerabilities, existing threats, and critical incidents before they do. While such scenarios are growing increasingly common among threat intelligence vendors, The industry as a whole has yet to standardize and enforce guidelines pertaining to what happens next. Very true. What exactly should you do after uncovering that? For instance, an organization is unknowingly infected with dangerous malware, has yet to discover a large-scale data breach, or has a zero-day vulnerability with the potential to harm its entire base of end users. While it can be tempting to disclose findings of this nature to the public immediately through the media or other marketing means, also known as, quote, full disclosure, doing so could exacerbate the circumstances for attack victims and their broader networks. The ramifications can be enormous, which is why it's time for threat intelligence vendors to model themselves after security researchers and recognize the critical need for responsible disclosure. 
First and foremost, not adhering to responsible disclosure has the potential to amplify the threats posed by certain vulnerabilities and incidents. By publicly exposing a zero-day vulnerability without giving the affected company sufficient time to address it, you also expose the vulnerability to threat actors who could potentially take advantage of it before a patch becomes available. And given that a patch may not always be made available immediately, it's even more crucial that knowledge of the vulnerability remains as restricted as possible from those with the potential to abuse it. Even in certain circumstances where knowledge of a vulnerability has already fallen into the wrong hands, public disclosure can be detrimental. For instance, let's say you observe a small group of cyber criminals on an elite dark web forum discussing plans for exploiting a flaw in a popular mobile banking app. Suppose that this flaw would enable anyone to bypass the app's anti-fraud measures, and as such, it renders the app's entire end-user base extremely susceptible to fraud. While knowledge of the vulnerability has initially limited to a small group of elite cybercriminals, publicly disclosing it vastly increases the number of people able to abuse and capitalize on it, thereby rendering even more end-users susceptible. Such practices can be especially damaging in situations where the vulnerability affects the company's critical systems, sensitive information, and or broader network of stakeholders. Aside from the security and safety implications of not adhering to responsible disclosure, such practices facilitate victim shaming, to which numerous negative widespread implications are inherent. First, victim shaming can be a PR nightmare for the affected organization. An abundance of negative press and countless inquiries typically means that the organization may need to waste precious time and resources with fears and responding, often without clear answers to the media, customers, stakeholders, shareholders, and others. In many cases, bad PR of this nature can sensationalize the threat, vulnerability, or incident leading to a large-scale public overreaction with the potential to ripple outward even further and take more time and resources away from the affected organization. For the vendors whose disclosure of an organization's sensitive information leads to unnecessary public outcry and or victim shaming, the consequences can be substantial. Regardless of whether this is the case, vendors who engage in such practices may appear to be hurting another brand's reputation as a means of gaining media coverage, earning industry recognition, and building their own name. As threat intelligence, as threat intelligence vendors, we often face intense pressure and competition to be the first to release, quote, breaking news and identify critical information for the broader community. While public disclosure of certain vulnerabilities and effective organizations may be tempting for these reasons, it's crucial to recognize that the potential negative fallout may be neither productive nor conducive to upholding the culture of security awareness we all strive for. Although security researchers have been proponents of responsible disclosure for years, established practices and protocol are just beginning to gain traction among intelligence vendors. At Flashpoint, while our approach varies depending on the nature and severity of the threat posed by the vulnerability and or incidents, it's always our first priority to notify the affected organization immediately. From there, we work with the organization to ensure that vulnerabilities have been addressed and threats mitigated, and in many cases, we can do so without ever naming the organization publicly. Often, responsible disclosure means announcing the key facts 
surrounding an incident, typically what others need to know in order to protect themselves without disclosing all of the unnecessary specifics. For instance, we may announce the ways in which a large healthcare organization on the West Coast became the victim of ransomware, indicators of the specific strain of ransomware, and what other organizations can do to avoid a similar fate. Under certain circumstances where our team feels that withholding the information could raise others' risk levels substantially but will not exacerbate the threat, we do release it to the public. But in an informative way that answers all questions, explains the risk accurately, outlines any actions those affected may need to take. This type of disclosure ultimately saves the affected organization substantial time and resources by informing the public in an organized way. Ultimately, it's our job to help our customers and the broader community protect themselves and mitigate risk, not, not expose them to more risk. That was an interesting article uh, Security Week had there. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, a lot of things in the article that I didn't expect, you know, that kind of popped up. And, you know, a lot um, of things that I'm hearing about this um, of uh, victim shaming and and all the fake stuff. Well, you know, you, you could do um, tabletop exercises to go through this stuff to see how your organization would handle. Right. I mean, the situation. Couple it with, uh, you know, a pen test and, you know, some other things. Mm -hmm. Just have exercises set up so that you can start to look at the readiness of the organization. This definitely should be within that toolkit, within that, you know. I agree. Within what, while you're running through that, run through this. All right. So, SHA-1 versus SHA-2. The secure hashing algorithm. I know you want to hear about this, Nick, right? Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> so do all of our listeners. So it is a big deal. Um, for the past couple of years, browser makers have raced to migrate from SHA-1 to SHA-2 as researchers have intensified warnings about collision attacks moving from theoretical to practical. In just weeks, a transition deadline set by Google, Mozilla, and Microsoft for the deprecation of SHA-1 is up. Starting January 24th, Mozilla Firefox browsers will be the first major browser to display a warning to its site who a warning to its users who run into a site that doesn't support TLS certificates signed by the SHA-2 hashing algorithm. The move protects users from collision attacks where two or more inputs generate the same hash value. In 2012, Bruce Schneier projected a collision attack SHA-1 would cost 700,000 to perform by 2015 and 143,000 by 2018. In 2015, researchers said tweaks to existing attacks and new understanding of the algorithm could accelerate attacks and make a full-on collision attack feasible from somewhere between seventy-five dollars to $125,000. Experts warn that the move SHA-2 um, comes with a wide range of side effects, from unsupported applications, new hardware headaches tied to misconfigured equipment, and cases of crippled credit card processing gear unable to communicate with the back-end servers. They say the entire process has been confusing and unwieldy to business and dependent on growing number of digital certificates used for not only their websites, but data centers, cloud services, and mobile apps. SHA-1 deprecation in the context of the browser have been an unmitigated success. 
but it's just the tip of the SHA-2 migration iceberg. Most people are not seeing the whole problem, says Kevin Bosek, VP of Security Strategy and Threat Intelligence for Venify. SHA-1 isn't just a problem to solve by February. There are thousands more private certificates that will also need migrating. Nevertheless, it's browsers that have been at the front lines of the SHA-1 to SHA-2 migration. And starting next month, public websites not supporting SHA-2 will generate various versions of ominous warnings, cautioning users to the sites they are visiting as insecure. Side note, while we're talking about this, Mm -hmm. couldn't attackers just capitalize on this and start to do some man-in-the-middle type stuff? (laughs) Like, you should accept this certificate if you want to continue to this website. Call to arms, yes. Oh, let me click right here. Oh, jeez. Okay, so back into the story. According to Venify's research team, 35% of the IPv4 websites it's analyzed in November are still using insecure SHA-1 certificates. However, when the researchers scan Alexa's top 1 million most popular websites for SHA-2 compliance, it found only 536 websites were not compliant. Exceptions to every rule. But there still are companies concerned about disruption to their business after the deadline, asking for exceptions and exploring alternatives to full SHA-2 support. When you are, what you are seeing is various companies, for one reason or another, unable to complete the migration, said Pat Donahue, security engineering product lead at Cloudflare. The browser makers have created an exception process that allows companies to make appeals for exception that allow CAs, certificate authorities, to issue them. For example, last year Mozilla allowed a security firm to issue nine new SHA-1 certificates to payment processor WorldPay to use in 10,000 of its payment terminals worldwide. WorldPay argued because it missed a December 31, 2015 cutoff for obtaining SHA-1 certs, it needed SHA-1 certs to buy more time and make the transition to SHA-2, or risk having thousands of its terminals go dark. After a considerable debate, Mozilla granted the exception and issued SHA-1 certificates after the cutoff date. According to Cloudflare, as many as 10% of the credit card payment systems may also face problems as browsers reject SHA-1 certificates used in terminals similar to WorldPay's. For credit card processing, it's not as simple as a software upgrade. It will require sending out new credit card processing machines that support SHA-2, Donahue said. For social networking behemoth, Facebook, it wasn't so much about the company looking for an exception, rather a solution that could allow it to keep its users stuck on older computers and aging handhelds connected to its service. In late 2015, Facebook estimated up to 7% of browsers used by its customers particularly in developing countries, would not be able to use the newer SHA-2 standard. At the time, Facebook Chief Security Officer Alex Stamos says, We don't think it's right to cut tens of millions of people off from the benefits of encrypted Internet, particularly because of the continued usage of devices known to be incompatible with SHA-256. The solution for Facebook is similar to what a number of companies have sought. A stopgap to fix until the SHA-2 adoption is ubiquitous. Facebook said it has found success running large TLS termination edge with certificate switching where it intelligently chooses between or which certificate a person sees based upon Facebook's guess as to the capabilities of the user's browser. Facebook says this allows us to provide HTTPS to old browsers using SHA-1 while giving newer browsers the benefits of SHA-256. Is that something that Facebook did proprietary? 
I think so. I think it's something they did internal. Okay, that's pretty cool. So Cloudflare and Mozilla have both developed a similar technique for customers concerned that line of business websites will stop working after the deprecation deadline. So the biggest excuse among web server operators is the need to support the Internet Explorer on Windows XP, pre-SP3, which does not support SHA-2. However, websites with this requirement, including www.mozilla.org, have developed techniques that allow them to serve SHA-2 certificates to modern browsers while still providing a SHA-1 cert to IEXP clients, says JC Jones, cryptographic engineering manager at Mozilla. Workarounds for browsers, but different SHA-2 transition challenges persist with mobile app space. So, you know, we'll, this story goes on for a little bit longer, talks about a lot more stuff. I think what we've kind of highlighted with this is the fact that if your organization is faced with a SHA-1 to SHA-2 migration, there are other options out there, right? If your app or hardware will not support the transition right now, you have developers that have to, you know, code in the change or um, or make the change or you have to purchase new hardware or whatever the case is. The best policy is to just be uh, communicate, communicate with the individuals that are making the change and see exactly what can happen. In this case, you either have the browser provider or you have um, certificate authorities, right? So definitely something to keep in mind. Very cool stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, do we have anything coming up? Uh, The only thing I can think of, of course, is uh, the National Cyber Summit we got going on here in Huntsville. Oh, okay. That's cool. It's the ninth annual, right? Ninth annual one. You can check out more information at nationalcybersummit.com. Cool. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, thanks for staying in sync with InfoSec Sync. InfoSec Sync has been brought to you by VicTech, established to provide fast and reliable technologies for the U.S. intelligence community and Department of Defense. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net.